are now checked into Let's Talk Books Radio. You're listening to Let's Talk Books Radio. I'm Stephanie Andrea Allen, and joining me are my co-hosts, Lauren Sherrill, and our guest this morning is writer Emma LaVon Rice. Welcome, everybody. I just want to start by just um, just fawning over this story. Um, I read it again this morning. I've read it a few times already. And each time I just feel like I see something a little bit different. But one of the things that just really struck me was just the beauty of the writing here. I think um, I, I honestly didn't get it the first time I read it. I'm like, what cut's she doing? And then... <laughs> And then, but I was just so struck by the language and the beauty of it. And I just, you know, I'm just someone who loves beautiful writing and I just don't know what other word I want to use for it, but just, it's only beautiful and just sensuous and just, um, and just really striking in, in some ways. So I, I just want to start by saying how much I really just love reading this story just for the f- pure f- pleasure of just reading it. Um, Thank you. Welcome. But my first question is, how did you come up with that different story? I think um, in our Publishers Week of Review, it mentioned time travel. I, I don't remember what the, exactly it said, but it said something about a, a, a time travel story. And I was like, who are they talking about? And then I realized it's this, you know, and I think mm-hmm. when I read it the first time, I didn't think of it as a tra- time travel story. I thought about it as a story about motherhood and about love. Um, but of course it's time travel. Of course it is. Um, but I just want to hear your thoughts on how you come up with this idea and 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 this particular format of the story. Oh, yes. So once again, thank you for your compliments. It's very, very warming to my heart. Um, there was a uh, interview with this theoretical physicist, a black man called Ronald Mallett, that was on the... Uh, uh, what's it called? Oh, goodness. It's leaving my mind now. What is it called? What is it called? Um, this American Life. Okay. And he talks about the reason why he became a physicist was to basically figure out a way to reunite with his father, hmm. who he loved a great deal. And so I'm really interested in quantum physics and the emotional dimensions of that. Not Because I think sometimes when we talk about time travel, it seems very abstract to me, like, well, I want to go back in the past and walk among the pyramids. Hmm. What I've always been really interested in, so if I could time travel, I would want to meet my ancestors, Hmm. for example. I would want to, um, I don't know, get some answers about my lineage. Um, Is it possible to reweave the past, Hmm. some of the painful threads? So that was some of the genesis of that. Of all the things I thought you might say, I didn't think that would be it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, and, I, and, I'm a, and I'm a space geek. People that know me well know that I love everything about space and space travel and the space shuttles. And uh, I've I've watched a little bit of um, a couple of documentaries about theoretical physics and that kind of stuff. But I'm just thinking, I'm just not that kind of smart. I wish I was. Um, <laughs> but I do think that there's something to be said for, you know, how you took that idea and you know, this story about this woman who was actually able to time travel in this really unique way. Um, I'm also interested in in the notion that there, 
human but not, or animal but not? Could you tell us a little bit more? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so I'm fascinated by um, hybrids, mm. whether it's centaurs or um, any of that, minotaurs, and just this concept that, and I also identify as a fairy, <laughs> as well as human. So yes, <laughs> big disclosure here. So for me, as someone who feels like I have hummingbird and fairy in my DNA, it feels very natural to me. So um, I love this idea that we have this mundane world, supposedly, right? And then in the, there's a hidden, um, I don't know, a hidden, once again, lineage mm. that people have, once again, harkens back to ancestors mm. and that things are not what they seem mm. at first look. So hope that answers your question. <laughs> Thank you. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I know, I'm weird. You know you've got to follow up with the fairy. you got to tell us a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, so I identify with, um, it's hard to explain because it's it's something I talk about with people and I think, they think I'm just being whimsical, and I am whimsical, but it also is something I feel really seriously about. Mm -hmm. I actually did a shamanic journey some years ago, and it came up when I was doing this, you know, um, I don't know if it's regression, but I was doing this journey, basically, and I learned that my, um, I have fairy in my lineage. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, wow, you know, it makes sense. And it's something, what is a fairy? So for me, the way I live in fairy is it's an elemental spirit of the land. And I think fairies are overwhelmingly associated with Europe, but elemental spirits, you know, are associated with every culture in the world. As a shorthand, I'd say, just like I identify as a hummingbird, I'd also say that my fairy identification is similar and that I'm drawn to beauty. And you talked about the sensuality and all of that, like being a living form of poetry. Um, that's one way I live in fairy. It's not just Tinkerbell and the Disney incarnations, um, but fairy, in, in some cultures, fairies are something you never represent in art, or it's something that's a trace. So you can tell a fairy's been here by certain um, patterns that have been left, but you actually never really see a fairy. So I also identify with that sense of mystery and poetry. Mm. Oh, and let me be clear. The name of the story is the Sing Ripper. <laughs> yes, it is. Anyone <laughs> who's wondering, so it's the Sing Ripper, which is in uh, Black in the Future. But I think that whimsical element, um, like like Stephanie said, when when I first read the story, I did kind of I was like, what is going on here? Because you because as an editor, you have to read in layers. Mm -hmm. and if, if I continue to read, you know, with each layer, allow myself to you know, discover something new, experience the story in a different way, and then to kind of allow myself to unravel everything that you place in the story. And I think that whimsical element is definitely something you can see here. Mm -hmm. If you had to kind of place this story in a genre, what would it be? That's a really good question. Magical realism. I think that's fair. Um, I think magical realism, as it brushes up against speculative fiction, mm -hmm. feels right. And could I add, also add one other genre I'd say it fits in is fabulism. Mm -hmm. So I was going to say that's one word that just came to me. Well, I'm, um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit because um, I want people to know that you write across multiple genres. And of course, when we speak with you, and I learned this last time, you just have to go to Google, type in Amalavon Rice and see what's new. <laughs> <laughs>
just I want to preface it with this. It's a really good read. So if you're listening, go online, type in Guts Magazine, and find um, a story about Waste Top Black OCD story, which I found incredibly informative. Um, it's mm. incredibly personable. And as we know, we don't have enough out there about Black mental health and the ways that it affects us. Um, right. And so I want to talk about that. And I want to read a quote from the article. It mm-hmm. goes, so when does this neurobiology of OCD end and the adaptive hypervigilance as a Black person begin? I cannot speak for other Black people with OCD, but for me, race colors my OCD experience, my Blackness, and my, o- and my OCD are indivisible. Let me say that again. My Blackness and my OCD are indivisible. I just thought that was profound, and I would like to really just spend a little time in this podcast talking about um, this particular piece that you submitted and why it was so important for you to put it out there. Um, well, once again, thank you for lifting that up. It's really important to me because I OCD is something that we, in popular culture, is invoked a lot, really carelessly, carelessly um, when it's actual actual condition and actual form of neurodivergence. And so very few people relative to the population have OCD, um, even though people think, oh, OCD is when I'm, you know, clean a lot or whatever. So with that context, there's also very few um, representations of black people who have OCD. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, there's a stigma. Um, they, black depression is stigmatized. And I also think black anxiety slash black OCD is illegible. Mm -hmm. It just is off the map. And so that felt really important to me. And I felt like when I thought about these so-called pathological dimensions of OCD, how much they plugged into what it means to live in a black body in the United States, in the West, in the world. And like, so what is OCD? What is just being a black person and learning that you have to be hypervigilant, for example. Mm-hmm. And how does being black amplify um, some of the rituals that I might do or some of my intrusive thoughts? Mm-hmm. And one reason why I wrote it is that I really, my therapist is wonderful, but she's a white woman. Mm-hmm. And it's actually learning from me because it really, she doesn't have any P- POC clients really. Um, and doesn't have many, hasn't had many. And so I felt like I had to write myself into a particular story. I basically had to write something that I needed to read and to explore and be uncertain in public, which is interesting because OCD is a doubting disease. So I actually had to um, uh, embody a kind of doubting and uncertainty, which was very scary. But I found that what's really interesting is that black people especially Black people who have anxiety disorders, have been really moved by the piece. I really didn't expect that. I didn't expect people to say, oh, my God, I've been really wanting to have this conversation, or someone wrote me recently and said, this is life-changing. And I was just really taken aback because I was really just speaking from my core. Um, But I did want to make a service. I did want, in some ways, to speak to other Black people, and I'm glad that that resonance was found. One thing that's not mentioned in the piece, but is part of the context background, because the issue that I wrote for is um, the issue theme was surveillance. And so Simone Brown was invoked um, 
I think in the introduction, but not in my piece specifically. And I just want to lift up Simone Brown, mm -hmm. who wrote Dark Matters. Um, she, I think I didn't realize before reading her work that so much surveillance that, let's say, Americans are experienced was designed to um, discipline Black people. Mm -hmm. And so much of it's racialized, it's actually staggering. And so um, I just wanted to make sure that her scholarship is mentioned. I just want that I have not read the piece, but now I'm, I'm going to. Uh, and I'm also <laughs> going to check out Simone Brown's uh, Dark Matters. Uh, and part mm -hmm. of it, I have a couple of folks who are very close to me who suffer from anxiety disorders. And one dear friend um, who committed suicide some years ago, uh, who's mm. mental illness issues and so I think that I'm always you know on the lookout for uh, pieces that 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 delve deep into that because I do think that it is hard for us particularly to write about uh, and I say that because I think the 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 underlying notion like you mentioned in this country is that black women are able to bear more you know that we are like Zora Neale Hurston says a mule of the world so the expectation is that we can carry all this weight and that mental illness does not impact us in the same ways or that we don't, that's not what we're experiencing, but it is though. It's not just we're tired. It's not just, you know, um, you know, the person itself, but sometimes it is something else, you know? And so mm -hmm. constantly are questioning ourselves, you know, or are you just being hypervigilant like you mentioned earlier, or are you suffering from something that that's deeper than that, you know? And so I think that, it takes us to, to be aware of ourselves and our bodies and our mental states, as well as to listen when people are saying to us, you know, I, I don't feel like something is right. This is more than what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis and it's just black people. This is something different, you know? And so I think it's hard for us to sometimes gauge that, but, um, but we must, you know? I know mm -hmm. one who's writing more about her mental illness publicly. And at first I was like, yeah, do you want to put yourself out there like that? And I said, you know what, girl? You, yes, thank you. We need to talk about this more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, because mm -hmm. um, not doing so doesn't help anybody. Um, and people need to know that we're suffering from this stuff too, or not necessarily suffering, but dealing with these issues as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Therapists, and we sometimes need medication, and that's okay. You know, we need to be able to talk. Absolutely. Absolutely. Know? And I'll also add something, I feel like that's related to this genre question that came up a little earlier, is I feel like memoir and creative nonfiction is my central mm. place I like to work in. And I feel like there is so much, I don't know, just, it's fear, it's a scary thing to expose yourself mm. and the self-disclosure, like you were saying. It's like, because I actually, <laughs> with this piece that I had experience with that, my partner, um, shared this piece and then someone in her life was like, oh my goodness, you know, Alma, you sure you want to be with someone like that? And I was like, wow, here it is. Here's a stigma. Yeah. You know, and I know for me, reading, I got this, what's it from the movie, uh, Shadowlands. Hmm. There's this line, we read to know we're not alone. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's what reading has done for me for so many years. Mm -hmm. And for me, if I can be open enough so someone feels less alone in the world, it's worth it. Yeah. You know, definitely worth it. That's unfortunate because, like you said, the stigma really touches on the fact that as Black people, we still have not, we still have not normalized 
the breadth of our human experience. Mm-hmm. When it comes to our mental health, that these are things that we deal with and not having to minimize by, you know, helpers or medical professionals or mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. Because in the same vein, we have the same issue with pain, you know. Mm-hmm. And I know right. you've, written, you've written about that, but when it comes to our experiences with pain or how, how our bodies are affected, then, you know, I guess because we were once enslaved, mm-hmm. but we have mm-hmm. born so much in this country that somehow, some way, our bodies can't be in pain. Right. Exactly, exactly. Right. And that's, you know, the the foundation of modern gynecology is the torture of black women and uh, upon the premise that we feel less pain. And it's, it's very frightening that even to this day studies reveal, even with medical practitioners, Mm -hmm. that this idea that black people actually feel less pain. And to me, that's a tragedy, but it's also a tragedy when we internalize those notions, Mm -hmm. whether it comes to mental pain or physical pain, you know, it's just really horrible. Um, I want to um, switch back to the to the story simply because mm-hmm. I thought of a question as as we were talking earlier. Um, you you give us some descriptions of these characters, um, but but I'm still wondering for you. Uh, so for example, um, Lila has a beak, you know, and so um, we get a little bit about uh, Taylor. You know, she's goes from silver to gray, and so. In my mind, I'm trying to envision, so what do they really look like? And so I just, mm-hmm. I, I want you to tell me, you know? <laughs> no. Well, I want you to tell me. Yeah. <laughs> How does one embody a hummingbird? And then, and, and so you mentioned she has one, a, a tiny drop of human in her. So what does that look mm-hmm. like, though, you know? And so, you know, I, so I'm just curious. In my head, I have you know, I, I've been trying to figure it out. Okay, so now, what are they, are they more human looking and less, you know, avian or they're more, you know, just, you know, I, I've been trying to figure out if we wanted to see these people or see these folks in real life or say, for example, you know, when we want to screen or in an illustration, what would that look like for you? How do you envision these characters? Um, That's a really good question. And I also like the iridescence of it, like uh, the idea that, is it more avian? Is it more human? Does it change shape? Right. You know, it depends on the trick of light. Yes. That, you know, you might see other characteristics show up more than others at different times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that line where you have, um, what does it say? Um, looking here to find it because I thought it was so cute and, and it was a little funny because I thought, I thought you did a really good <laughs> job of throwing a little humor in here. My Lala always had a gem sharp memory. Must be all the sugar. I slid another glass of tree sap in her direction. And I thought that was so cute. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, okay, so she's also being funny. But I'm thinking, so, you know, how is she? Because she, she eats key lime pie, so it's a beak, you know? So I just think the notion of trying to figure out what these characters look like was also part of the fun, but also it left me wondering, how does this thing work with them, you know? Um, so I just, I just, really just want to hear more about that from your perspective as you were creating these characters. What did you, what did you see? It's interesting for me. It was about a lot about interiority and not so much about um, something physical, even though, you know, actual hummingbirds in the wild Mm -hmm. are so diverse. Mm -hmm. Um, They, there's some that, you know, we definitely see in the U S certain kinds like the 
rufous hummingbirds and ruby-throated, but when you go to places like Peru, especially deep in the rainforest, there's mm -hmm. some that look like science fiction. Mm -hmm. They truly do. And so um, I think in some ways my inspiration is the very, um, the very actuality of them. Like the marvelous um, Spratchel Tale mm -hmm. has a, this, this, um, kind of wire-like extension from its tail. Mm. And so I think this character lives in the same world that that, that the bird actually exists. Like, like I said, it's like science fiction. It's like, how can this creature fly? How does this work? You know, it's amazing. I just thought this was wonderful. And I, th and I think every time I read it, I've tried to figure out a little bit more. I, I think I learned a little bit more, but I'm still, you know, and I think this is the beauty of a short story. You don't get everything in the story. You have to figure some stuff out. You have to use your imagination a little bit more, which is, you know, in part frustrating as well as, you know, amazing, right? So, um, so I, I... Oh, thank you. That's a great compliment. That's actually the best compliment because to have a story that exhausts itself on one reading would just be, I would feel very bad if I wrote something <laughs> like that. You're welcome and thank you because you know and again you know part of it's just you know as editors we read uh the first read is always just do we like it what do we get from this so is it something that just draws us to the story and then you know the second third and fourth reads is something else okay so how's it structured you know is characterization okay is it does it move all right is, is the you know tone and pacing okay and so you know here you know, like like Mona and I both said, we were both like, well, what what is she doing? You know, but we knew we liked it. That's all that mattered. You know, we will figure that mm -hmm. part out. You know, um, because I, again, the beautiful writing as well as it, just so different from anything I'd ever read. I think, um, and I know when we talked to another writer um, a couple of weeks ago, I remember saying we only had one story about animals, and and then I realized, wait, we have two, but but this is really about animals. <laughs> you know, so I think. That was <laughs> I didn't classify it that way because it didn't feel like that, but I mm -hmm. think the hybridity as well as, you know, the ways in which you kind of play with the avian and the human, I think just make it really unique and, and just really lovely to read, you know? Um, and so, yeah. Thank you so much, y'all. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> I'm currently finishing up a, a piece right now for an anthology and it's just great to hear this. It gives me hope that I can just keep on going. <laughs> so I appreciate yeah. you all. But one thing I really enjoyed is that, you know, no matter what the genre is, whether it's, you know, magical realism or fabulism or whatever the case, that mm -hmm. it's still infused with elements that um, ring home to me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm from the South, of course, and so I'm a, we were just talking about this before we recorded, but you're from the South as well. And so mm -hmm. I'm here where you talked about the character's mom. Mm. to be called mama or mm -hmm. she had to be called mother and the reason why she had to be called mother you know um referencing just her experiences uh with jim crow georgia and it, mm -hmm. that i thought about my own mom who grew up in arkansas and how uh when i was a teenager she used to hate when we were out and about and people would call each other hun mm -hmm. i'm sure she still hates it to this day because she said hun was a word that white women used when they didn't have enough respect to say ma'am. Mm. 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 So, yeah, you know, those little things, you know, even though these characters are animals and, you know, there is a, a bit of magic taking place, mm -hmm. that it's still 
it's relatable in a way that brings home to our experiences as, you know, women in the South. That's so true. It reminds me of something my mother told me years ago when uh, a white woman told her to get be a good girl and get that for me. And my mother said, I haven't been a good girl in 39 years. Cool. You know? <laughs> Don't call me that. But yeah. Yeah. Um, Lauren, your comment about Arkansas and Hun made me think about Maya Angelou's story. I know, I know what a cage bird sing, and she called her mother mother too. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It has not a lot to do with the story, but just the the notion that mama wasn't acceptable, um, and she used mother more formally with her. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think this kind of also, uh, and I shouldn't be bringing this up, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, the whole idea, the 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 conversation that just happened here recently about using auntie and you know calling folks. Oh yes. And I have to be honest, I, I was like, y'all, can we talk about something else? You know, <laughs> but I, I mm-hmm. you know, I get it. But I also know that for, and I'm from Georgia. My parents were born in Jim Crow, Alabama, so they didn't grow up in Jim Crow, mm-hmm. Georgia. Very close. Um, and um, and moved to Columbus, Georgia, which is where I'm from, uh, to, which was getting away from Jim Crow, Alabama, right? Um, mm-hmm. But just this whole idea of auntie as a derogatory term, and I, and I do know that white folks use auntie with black women, right? We know that that actually did happen. But I also know that for a generation of us, auntie is a term of endearment for older women or women in our parent circles who were close, but not necessarily family, uh, and so was a, mm-hmm. a so I do think there are perspectives on that, you know, and the, the reality of it is, is that if a woman says, don't call me auntie, don't call her auntie, you know, right. but in this story, I do think the underlying theme um, is about this, this search for her mother's love. Um, and I have mm-hmm. to be honest, you know, even on two or three readings, you know, does she get it? You know, because we do see this at the very end, that last line, she says, mama. So, you know, I wasn't sure. And I think that, uh, you know, a little bit of uncertainty is inherent here in, in this particular story. You know, did that move from mother to mama here mean that they actually did switch time or did they not? You know, so mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to tell us, but I'm like, um, did something change or is she just calling out to her, you know? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil it, but if you want to tell us, I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> I'm happy to hear, this is exciting. The person, you know, is the writer. It's like, wow, it's a, it's a different piece in your head and your heart and your imagination. So I'm just, that's what's fascinating to me. Forget what I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but the indeterminacy, once again, I, I, I really think if anything is, you know, my core impulse as a writer is to be in the mystery, yeah. in the iridescence. And so I really, I love that you, you know, that that came through. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> so, one thing I um, would love to talk with you, Alma, about is Black queer representation. I want to have a conversation with you about where you are seeing strong Black queer representations right now. Well, I think that it's um, the underwire of so many of our like political movements. For example, I mean, Black Black Lives Matter. You know, it's Black queer women led and which is something I think that's invisibilized at times. A lot of conversations where we are having about mental health or the unspeakable um, is being 
pushed through by black queer people. I mean, I think even in Pittsburgh, like when I think about what's happening in the city, there was a um, extrajudicial shooting of a young black youth here, mm-hmm. um, Antoine Rose, and um, much of the organizing about making like local police accountable has been led by black queer folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so much music, so much, you know, pushing the envelope with music. I feel like I'm reading more and more writers in the creative nonfiction space and elsewhere who identify as black and queer. Cause I even remember years ago, I did an interview um, with this woman um, who was in, in, in the black literary space. And I used the word queer and she was like, oh, that's a white word. And I, I remember feeling, you know, chastened um, when it was a word I was using to describe myself. And that was years ago. And now to hear even those two words put together it feels like there's been a sea change. Like there's more comfort and people don't, you know, give it a second thought. Yeah, I want to um, just mention that, and I just, I, I don't mean to be tooting my own horn here, but what I will say, this anthology, um, and I, and I oh, will yes. say that I had not thought about, and so, and, and I'm one of those folks who don't tend to use queer to refer to myself. I, I'm, I'm a black lesbian and I'm fine with that. Uh, I do not mm-hmm. have a with folks using the word and we do use it ourselves to be more inclusive um but this is a black lesbian space and that's that's also important for us to name and claim that um but i think that i did not realize how many of the stories in this anthology focused on black lesbian or black queer you know um characters until publishers weekly said it because i I hadn't thought about the anthology in that way because we invited all black women writers, regardless of orientation or gender identity to submit. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't, um, you know, so I I didn't, uh, it wasn't a deliberate thing. And then when I went back to to start reading after we finally got the first set of gals, I'm like, well, you know, I think they might be right, (laughs) you know? So (laughs) (laughs) so it wasn't intentional this time. And and, and every other book has pretty much been, every other anthology has been very intentional about this is a book about Black, Black lesbian and queer women of color, you know? Um, And this one was just about Black women writers, period, you know, regardless. And so um, I think that what, what, BLF Press has tried to do is create a space for those voices and that work and those representations simply because I just think we need to have them. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm always a little annoyed when I see these lists and we're not on it, but I realize we're still tiny and people are still learning about us. But I do think that there is, that, that folks tend to lift up folks that they know as opposed to looking a little bit deeper to see what else is out mm-hmm. there. We have to be right. about we have to be, I mean, all of us have to be better about lifting each other up and about um, creating spaces or, you know, sharing what we know about those spaces when we come across them. So I think we try to do that, you know, with this podcast as, with the, as well as with the press, you know, um, because it's just important to us that we see ourselves out there. You said that people read to see themselves or read to live. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that 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 we're trying to do is make a space for us to be able to see ourselves so that we can have other models of, or modes of survival, you know, just in terms of the ways in which we can see ourselves in these stories, you know, helps mm-hmm. us going sometimes. So I think, you know, again, I just, I just feel like, you know, we just need to say that, you know, we doing it too over here. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I really believe what you're doing is very important. Yes, 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 yes. 
I get off my soapbox now. No, it's, it's important. It's important. And I think you lifted this up a while ago. It's important for us to buy the books and to go to the readings and just be part of supporting the culture makers, yeah. um, the queer, black, queer, black, lesbian culture makers. Um, yeah. So we, we're, we're all part of making this ecosystem healthier. Yeah. yeah. So we appreciate you all too, because honestly, you know, you are part of the work, you know, just, you know, we want to make sure that your voices are lifted up, which is why I love anthology so much because, and I love mm-hmm. short stories. So that's, you know, I told Lauren years ago, you know, I think that might be my thing. You know, I publish short stories and I, and I do love novels and everything else, but I think just in terms of being able to provide a space for more women writers mm-hmm. to come together in a collection, I know a lot of folks don't love them, but, but I do. And I think that- I love them. I love it. I have yeah. so many anthologies. It's not even funny. <laughs> <laughs> because like you're saying it's like these you know I think about the etymology of anthology a bouquet of flowers it's like you get to experience a gathering of flowers I think it's like you get to experience this particular flower and this particular flower and their voices I would never know about right. if it weren't for an anthology exactly. so yes I'm a big fan yes well, we appreciate you. I, I, I really do. You've been, I think, in two of ours now, for sure. Yes. Um, yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I was sharing on social media about the Starred Publishers Weekly mm-hmm. notation, and I'm like, that's a big deal. And, you know, people are like, oh, my God. I said, no, it's so big. Yeah, it's a big deal. You know, I, I, you know, Lauren and I joke because um, I, I think I've submitted every single one of our books, and they've like, nope, 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 nope. Oh, yeah, and on this one, we're going to give you a star review. I'm like, what? and we've gotten great reviews from other major you know trade publications but you know just I, I was just flabbergasted I'm still just floored you know um but just very very proud of the work that we've done so far and just that that someone has said yes this this is really great we love it and we want the world to know and that's important because i think that so often our voices do get lost especially if you're a tiny yeah. like me and it's all black everything lots of queer stuff in there how often does that happen you know so Mm-mm, not very often not enough but yeah, i'm gonna live on that one for a long time y'all can mm-hmm. be talking about all time <laughs> yes yes until we get the next one i hope but yeah, so um, so I'm just really grateful and appreciative of all of, of everybody who's supported us thus far. Um, yeah, so we're excited. <laughs> I was thinking this morning, I said, you know, people love to praise folks when they're gone from this earth. And I just don't believe in that. I believe that if you appreciate a writer or an artist or just anybody now, you need to tell them, you know. And for writers, we work in isolation for, you know, so yeah. don't often get any praise. Even when we're selling books, we're not always getting praise. You know, so I just think it's important to say, girl, your book was amazing. How did you do that? I Thank you. That I agree with 100%. I sometimes yeah. worry I seem too geeked out. I'm like, you know what? If that's the worst they can say about me, that's good. I'm like, my God, this saved my life. I loved it so much. Yes, you're right. We're like, you don't know how this thing is hitting. You know, um, I read this thing the other day that said, I write for friends and strangers. Mm which is the only way I think I can do the kind of disclosure I do in the memoir space. Mm-hmm. But it's like when you have someone coming up to you and saying, this got me through a hard moment. You're like, really? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so. Yeah. We never know how our work is impacting others until they tell us, you know, that's true. And we do know, especially books about black queer folk are, 
especially you know needed at, at a time where we've never written if ever been valued you know so those mm -hmm. moments, which i feel like at one point i'm like oh my god another one but i realized the importance of of what they are for folks who are one writing them and who need to see that you can be all these things black and queer in an activist or black and queer in a writer or black and queer in a business person whatever it is that people need to see mm -hmm. that kids who are you know, going to the bookstores and seeing these folks on tour and saying, you know, here's a model for me. I don't have to hide. I don't have to not do the things I want to do. I can live my life in this way, you know, and here's here's a way for me to do that. And so as, as much as I know that everybody isn't safe to be out, I do believe that visibility and representation is important for us because yes. it allows us to see ourselves in happy, healthy, and productive ways you know, and even sharing our trauma, you know, and our pain, you know, when when it's when we want, when we feel like we need to do that, because it can help other people, and I think that's important, you know. So, yes, if you can get it out there, I'm gonna do my best to read it, you know. Oh, my, that's great! Thank you so much. <laughs> I think it's really important too because I was reading something. I've been reading a lot of pieces lately that white writers have been putting out about, mm -hmm. you know, it's the end of the world, it's climate change, it's the Trump. America, what does it mean to write? And I feel like writing is important. Mm -hmm. Bringing beauty, clarity, witness, this is all important. Mm -hmm. And I feel some of the conversation feels mm, not Black-centered because especially our experience in this, on these lands, like, mm -hmm. you know, we've been through so many ap apocalyptic moments mm -hmm. and I'm here because an ancestor of mine needed to read, needed to write. Um, and so I just feel very strongly that in this moment, this is what I need to be doing. Mm -hmm. It's not what everyone needs to be doing, but it's my work. So I'm, I'm feeling more confident about that, even though sometimes it feels a little bit like, is, it, is this okay? But I also remember I need to be centered and um, a black lens, mm -hmm. a black American lens in terms of this is um, part of what we do. Right. part of the alchemy that we do living on these shores so so alma before we wrap up what's next for you and i'm hoping that you will talk a little bit about your making the memoir because i just find that idea very fascinating what what is <laughs> yes that's a good question i'm actually doing something i've been wanting to do for many many years which is to write um a full length a book length piece mm. and I was interested in writing a speculative memoir because I love memoir and I love speculative fiction. And I was thinking, wow, the integration of those things is so interesting. There's a Somali American writer, Sophia Samatar, who actually I think coined it. So for me, I see it as a black woman generated genre. Mm -hmm. and especially when you consider someone like Audre Lorde and mm -hmm. biomethography. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's part of the same, you know, neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So right now I basically have um, a bunch of lyric essays about my childhood infused with the fantastic mm -hmm. that um, I would like to <laughs> publish. So that is, um, I'm actually waiting to hear about funding that I might get to have some time away from my client work so I can focus on this full time. Mm -hmm. So that's what's next for me. I'm excited to read that. So please, please. Thank you. Please, I'll give her that money so she can write this book so I can read it. 
Yeah, thank you. Yes, I'll be working on it. And that's good. Actually, one of our friends, the, the beautiful thing, she actually sent me money. She sent me like $25. Okay, I'm buying this book already. I'm buying my copy. And that was such a wonderful affirmation that yeah. she was waiting for it. So that was really beautiful. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm trying to write um, with all the faucets on. Mm. There's nothing I'm holding back. So if I write nothing else, I have to get this out in the world. I just want to thank Alma for being here and, and just for sharing your gifts with us. I've loved your writing since the first time I read it. So I'm just so excited to have you in this anthology. And I am just waiting for your next publication. Oh, okay. I'm excited. I'm excited about what you all continue to do and what your anthologies and all these projects and your personal projects as well. And I'm just really honored that you um, have been so warm and welcoming to me today. I was really nervous. So I really appreciate you all. One last question. Anyone who's listening and they want to connect with you online, where can they go? Yes. So I have a website that's very just a one pager that's not tricked out yet, but it's Alma Creative, and that's A L M A H Creative, normal way, dot com. And then I am increasingly more on Instagram, and that is my handle there is Agent Subrosa, A-G-E-N-T-S-U-B-R-O-S-A. So that's something I'm trying to do, a mix of mixed media art as well as announcements about my writing projects there.